0: You would please turn in your Bible to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. And the text for this morning is verse 5. Let's read it together. Uh, Philippians 4 or 5. It says, Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Let your reasonableness be made known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Last week, we talked about our rejoicing, and uh, we learned something about our rejoicing, that for those who are found in Christ, they are commanded to rejoice in Christ, and that's a great command. I want to find my rejoicing in Christ. Did you rejoice in Christ this week? Did you think about finding your rejoicing in Christ this week as you lived your life? Did you find it difficult to remain focused on rejoicing in Christ regardless of the circumstance you find yourself? But it is what our Savior calls us to, to rejoice in him in the midst of all our circumstances. And so we find next another command. We find another imperative placed on God's people. And so we have... Two commands, and they're both the same. Rejoice, I'll say it again. Rejoice. Both commands it's the same command, though, and so now we have another one. And this time it's, "Let your reasonableness be known to everyone." And that's where we are so far. So we're going to look at the first half of this verse together. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone." Now if you don't have an ESV this morning, you're going to realize that the verse or the, the word "reasonable" is not in your text it says something different. It doesn't say reasonable. Uh, it says possibly gentleness, moderation, forbearance, patient mind, or graciousness. This is one of those circumstances where the English translations, none of the major translations agree on what words should be used here as a proper translation. But that's okay because we're gonna see that all these things really combine to the same idea. But what is this idea of reasonableness? Reasonableness. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone or let your gentleness, let your moderation, let your forbearance, let your patient mind be made known to everyone. I want to look as we get started at looking at this text together at two aspects of reasonableness. And so the first is this, is that there is a legal aspect to our reasonableness that we have to see. Because when we say, come on, let's be reasonable here. Most of the time, we're talking about something specific. We're saying, calm down, and let's just agree here. Let's just get along. Let's just be reasonable. Let's think about this the same way. But it's a little bit different here. There's a legal aspect to it. And what does that mean exactly, a legal aspect? I'm going to appeal to uh, Psalm 86.5. Psalm 86.5, and the reason I'm doing that is because in the Greek Old Testament. This word for reasonableness is only used one time. And actually, the Hebrew word that it's translating is also only used one time. Interesting. What is it talking about in that one occurrence in our Old Testament? It says, for you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. If we were to translate the English, or the, the, the Greek version of the English, it says, for you, O Lord, are good and fair and very merciful to all who call upon you. And it's that word for fair right there. You're forgiving or you're fair. Is God a fair God? He gives to everyone what they deserve. That's why it says he is forgiving. He is forgiving and fair. He is merciful. He is abounding in steadfast love to all. That's a good God, because God is not giving to all exactly what is due to them, is he? Is God giving to everyone exactly what they deserve? If that were true, we would never make it. We would not have enough breath to make it to the point of faith in Christ. We wouldn't have made it so long, but because God is merciful, he allows us breath to breathe, as we grow and as we hear the gospel of Christ and as we repent of our sins and we have faith in him. God is not giving us what we deserve. But God is fair. So here's what this word is starting to mean is that there is a legal aspect that God has exercises fairness in judgment. God exercises fairness in judgment. This is all about our reasonableness, okay? Because we're looking at God's reasonableness in order to understand what? How we are to be reasonable. He does not insist on his full legal rights and demand them now. You have found yourself guilty before the face of God and I demand my wrath now. Is that how God acts with humanity? Or is he merciful and allows us to still breathe and still live and he gives us life? He gives everyone life and breath, doesn't he? He is ready to pardon guilt. He is fair. He is equitable. He is reasonable. He is fair and sensible in judgment. There's another place we can appeal to in the New Testament. Peter talks about it. 1 Peter chapter 2. I'm going to read a few, few verses here. The same word is, is used again. But it, it talks about here, the reason I want to look at it is because it's about to talk about the character of Jesus. And when we look at the character of Jesus, whose character are we looking at? God's himself, right? And so we looked at God's character here just briefly in the Psalms, and we're gonna look at, God, at Jesus' character now in 1 Peter, and it has to do, again, with a legal aspect. Something about judgment is here. I want, you to, I want you to see it. Okay, it says, 1 Peter 2, beginning in verse 18, it says, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle There's our word, reasonable, but also to the unjust. Do you see how it's contrasted with those who are gentle or reasonable or equitable or fair with those who are not that way? Do you see it? Do you see the contrast between the two? For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, when mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering how? Unjustly, do you see the legal aspect here? For what credit is it when you sin that you're beaten for it and you endure, but if you do good and you suffer for it and you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin. Deceit was not found in his mouth. But when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. Here is the reasonable character of Jesus is that when he could insist on his own legal rights, he did not. You see, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. Could he have? When he suffered, he did not threaten. But instead, here's what he did. Here's what we need to pick up on he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. So instead of Jesus carrying out that judgment then, now when he was being wrongly judged, he did not immediately insist on carrying out judgment right then, but instead, what did he do? He entrusted himself to the one who does carry out judgment. And this is defined as reasonable behavior. Do you see it? This is reasonable behavior. Jesus was treated poorly, he was wrongly accused, he was reviled, he suffered. That word to revile, we don't really use that much. I don't anyway, do you? Do you say revile much? I don't. To revile means to pour out insult and abusive speech. He was insulted, he was abused. You ever been insulted? Have you ever been abused? You ever been reviled? Tell me, what was your character like in that moment? Did it model the character of Jesus Christ? Did it model the character of God? Was it reasonable? Not demanding in that moment, I'm gonna carry out justice on this fool now because if I don't, no one will. But is that true? Instead, how are we to act reasonably? Reasonably. We entrust ourselves to the one who does carry out justice rightly. And does that change our behavior? I can take a step back from that how? Gently and calmly. So do you see how the word gentle works here? Our gentle character, let our gentleness be known to all people, let our reasonableness, there's a legal aspect to it. I could demand, because you're falsely accusing me here, you're reviling me, Uh, I could demand justice and I could carry out justice on my own right now in this moment, now, But instead, I'm gonna have a calm attitude about myself. And I'm gonna be able to take a step back because you know what? I trust in a God who judges justly. And I'm gonna leave this to him. And my spirit is calm. My spirit is gentle. My spirit is what? Reasonable. How did Jesus process these moments? He did not return what was given to him. He did not threaten. He simply entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. How do you handle yourself when you're mistreated? I think we're fascinated with vigilante justice. All the Marvel stuff, what is that all about? Vigilante justice. Because we all want to be vigilantes. Who carry out our own justice, but not as who we are, but in the cover of night in disguise. Right? Why does that appeal to us so much? Because we want to be the ones to carry out justice. But that is not the Christian attitude. That is not the attitude of Christ himself as he took on human flesh. But instead, when he was in human flesh and he was reviled, he entrusted himself to the one who does carry out justice and it's not him, at least in that moment. It is to glorify Jesus when he returns. That's interesting, isn't it? But as he took on human flesh, he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. This is how we are to behave ourselves. So there is a legal aspect to our reasonableness and the basis for our reasonableness is what? What? The perfect justice of God. Do you trust in the perfect justice of God? Do you truly believe that one day justice will be rendered to every individual and it will not be done unjustly, but justly and perfectly? And knowing that and having confidence in that, does it change your attitude? Because it doesn't make me want to carry out justice because they're getting away with a crime here. You can't treat me like that. I'm going to carry out justice now on you here. And it makes me aggressive. It makes me threaten. It makes me revile in return. But this was not the attitude of Christ himself. And it is not the attitude that we're called to as believers. And so, this isn't the only aspect here. So let's go back to our verse. It says, let your reasonableness, what? Be known to everyone. And so here, let's make a distinction between two things. In scripture, we have commands given to us, but sometimes they're explicit, sometimes they're implicit. Let's make a distinction. The implicit command here is be reasonable. That is by implication, be reasonable. Because how can we show people something if we don't have it, right? But it doesn't say here, be reasonable. That's not the command. But that command is implied. The command here is, put your reasonableness on display. Let it be known to people that you are reasonable. That's the command. So we have an implicit command, be reasonable, because otherwise how can I put it on display? And then we have the explicit command here, let people see it. Tell me, already knowing what we know about reasonableness, people look at you and say, man, they're a reasonable person. They handle themselves so well. Look at, look at all their, look at, I see someone just just beating them up verbally or, or they're, they're saying something about how they're falsely accusing them. How are they handling themselves? Reasonably? Gently? Calmly? Entrusting yourself to the one who judges justly? Or taking justice into your own hands by threatening and reviling? And so it says, let your reasonableness be made known to everyone. That's the command. And so there is the second aspect here. The second aspect of our reasonableness is not only legal, but it is relational. So we have to understand our reasonableness. What is it? It has a legal aspect to it. But what are we to do with it? Well, there's a relational aspect of our reasonableness here. What kind of relational interactions were the people of Philippi having, the church in Philippi? Because remember that this was a real historical letter written to real people at a real church in a real location. And so what did Paul have in mind when he wrote this letter to the Philippians? Because we should also have that in our mind to properly understand it and interpret it, correct? So what was he thinking? What was he saying to that church? What type of people were they around? What kind of interactions did they have? Well, I want to take you back just for a second to Philippians chapter 1. If you're in in 4, just turn back a couple pages. Look with me at Philippians chapter 1, just a couple of verses. Start in verse 27. Verse 27 reads, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and I see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit, one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, not frightened in anything by your opponents. It's a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. In other words, their destruction doesn't come at your hand. It comes by God's hand. Do you see it? For it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engage in the same conflict that you saw I had and here that I still have, okay? So here are the type of people that the Philippians were encountering. You have Paul and Timothy, obviously. You have one another in the church. And then what kind of people do you have outside of that? Their opponents, the enemies, what he called the dogs, those who were against them. And so they had one another, as we do. We have one another. By the way, remember to make the proper distinction that we are not each other's enemies. We are not to be the ones who in co- are in conflict here. We are on the same team. We are here together in Christ. We are all in Christ together. But outside, Paul reminds us that there are the dogs. There are the evil doers. There are some who want to cause conflict. There are some who want to inflict me in my imprisonment. Is that what he says? and you were engaged in the same conflict with me. And so what I'm saying here is they have relationship with the world that is good, one another, but then hard, difficult, the world around them that seems to be crushing in on them and opposing them and inflicting them. And so they had both. Summarize the thought here. As those who trust in God's perfect justice, we put this confidence on display in all our relationships. Are you insisting on your full legal rights immediately? Not ready to pardon guilt? Unfair, unsensible, unreasonable? If this is you, scripture is calling for a change of heart, a conviction of the way that you are processing this behavior in the world. Paul, how did he handle this kind of situation? He said, remember, what then? Only in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. And he had just said, there are some who want to inflict me in my imprisonment, but you know what, Christ is proclaimed, so I'm going to rejoice. Now, was Paul being unfairly treated, unjustly treated, and how did he choose to respond? In rejoicing. Well, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, so I'm just going to rejoice. I'm going to choose to rejoice in that. Entrusting himself to the one who judges justly changed his behavior. What does this tell people about your faith? What does this tell people about the God you serve? What does this tell people about the unjust situations that you face in life? Because the way you handle yourself in this world is telling people what your confidence is in. The way you handle these types of situations in your life is telling people whether you have confidence in God or not. Do you believe in the promises of God? And if you do, it's going to change your behavior here on earth because there is one who judges justly and it's not you. But you have confidence in the one who does. And so I'm able to go through these circumstances in life without breaking down. And it's like the weight of the world is set on me because I have to bring about justice for myself. But no, that is not your call you entrust yourself to the one who does justice rightly, and that is God himself. If we trust in God's sovereignty over his creation, not only sovereignty and his providential control in in all things, not only that, but there is a sense of God's sovereignty where he sits reigning and ruling over his whole creation, right? If you trust in that, It will change your behavior truly because you know that there is something far greater than yourself. God is not going to let any evil deed escape without punishment, either one, on the person of Jesus Christ or two, on that person themselves. There is no evil deed unpunished in the universe throughout all human history. Do you believe that to be true? If you do, it should change your behavior to a reasonable spirit. But it doesn't just say be reasonable, does it? It's not how it ends, is it? Make it known to all people that you are reasonable. Why am I reasonable? Because of the sovereignty of God. That is why I have a reasonable spirit about me. And I believe it to be so. Because he holds the world in his hands perfectly, I don't need to try to grab it with my hands. I simply trust him. Do you see the difference? And do you see how that would make you start to be calm because all of a sudden I don't have to, I don't, I don't have to do that. God is gonna do it for me perfectly. I'll mess it up most likely anyway, won't I? But he will do it perfectly perfectly. And so we trust and we make it known to people that our reasonableness is found in God himself. Okay, but that's, that's not where the verse ends, is it? Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. What is this? What is this about the Lord being at hand? So at hand here refers to a nearness. Just think about the imagery. At hand, what is at hand to me? What can I reach out and touch? My Bible is at hand. Here it is. What is at hand to me? Well, it's not only the things here, but at hand is the, well, potentially the end of my sermon is at hand. You know, it's, it's at hand in time. But my Bible is at hand here in space. You get the two different aspects here? Something at hand is something that you can reach out and touch. It is near to you. And so in what way is God near? Is he near in space? Is he here? Or is he near in time? He's coming soon. Yes. To both. But how does that have any, what, what does that have to do with what has preceded it? What does this have to do with our reasonable behavior being made known to all people? The fact that the Lord is at hand. What does this have to do with anything? It has everything to do with it. So let's look at these. There's a distinction here I want to make between the imminence of God, uh, in the nearness of time, and then and then, the imminence of God. But let's look at it. Okay, the imminence of God it means that God is near in time. God is near in time. What does that mean? God is near. The Lord is at hand. James makes a reference to it here, and I'll just I'll I'll, I'll just read it for you. He says James five seven through nine. Be patient, therefore, brothers. Until the coming of the Lord? See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains, literally meaning rain. You also, being patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. So don't grumble against one another. Brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. And so, Jesus Christ has promised that he is coming soon. Jesus Christ has promised that he is coming soon, in time. So, why did James need to write to the Christians and say, Be patient? Be patient. Because we keep saying, The Lord is coming. For 2,000 years we've been saying he's coming. Be patient. The promise of God is true. He is coming. Don't lose heart over the fact that he hasn't come in 2,000 years. He is coming. You can find that promise. Revelation 22, 10 through 12. Behold, I'm coming soon. I'm bringing my recompense with me to repay everyone for what he has done. So there is a legal aspect to his coming, right? 2 Peter 3 talks about this unsettling nature of the fact that that Jesus hasn't come back yet. Because when someone says, I'm coming, I'm coming, and over and over again, they haven't come yet. Everybody has that person in their life that says they're coming, and then you say, I don't know, I don't know if they're coming or not. But you know, that's kind of how they are. You all, if you don't have that person in your life, guess what? That's you. <laughs> you are that person. But after a while, you start to think, well, where are they? Where are they at? Where are they coming? They tell me they're coming. Where are they at? You start to get impatient, and when we get impatient and we're waiting on someone, we often take matters into our own hands. Be patient. The Lord is coming. You don't need to take matters into your own hands. Peter addressed the church because he knew they were getting impatient. He even says, 2 Peter 3. Now, this is the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved, and in both of them, I'm stirring you up by way of reminder so that you will remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through the apostles. Know then, that scoffers will come in the last days, scoffing, following their own sinful desires, and they will say, listen to what they say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. You keep saying, Christians, Jesus is coming back, he's bringing his judgment with him, and, and the world says, yeah, I, I don't think so. That's a fairy tale. You've been saying that for a long time, Christians, and it's just not happening. For they deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water through water by the word of God and that by means of the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished by the same word the heavens and the earth that now exist are being stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So he he says, just as there was a promise made to Noah that the world was going to face judgment through water and it happened, by that same promise, by that same word, by that same God, there's another promise made that judgment is coming again, finally, this time not by water, this time through fire. And believe me, just as people were mocking Noah in the day, so people are mocking us but we trust in the promises of God and his coming, don't we? If you trust in the coming judgment of God and that it is near for all people, guess what this is gonna do to your spirit? It's gonna make you calm and it's gonna make you a reasonable person. The Lord is coming to take care of this. Sometimes we want to grab the world and shake it. I know, I know. Do you trust that one day God will shake all things? And he will judge with proper judgment. He will, and he's coming soon. But there's another aspect to his nearness, and we ought to be thankful for it. Because it's not something we simply have to look forward to in the future. There is a here and now reality to God's nearness. And if you experience the nearness of God, you already know what I'm about to say. Because there is a distinction between the imminence of God, His nearness in time, and the imminence of God and the nearness of space. Just a difference in one letter changes its meaning. The imminence of God is His nearness in space, His l- literal nearness to us. Do you know that God is near to you, or do you feel as though He is far from you? Because that will change your behavior as well, won't it? If you feel as though God is distant from you it may cause you to panic and take things into your own hands. But knowing that God is near to you brings a consolation to your heart and to your mind, which is why the text for next week, it proceeds immediately into what? So don't be anxious about anything, right? Because God is near. He's here and he's in control. But that's for next week. This week, the nearness of God in space. I say this, that God is always near to his creation. Did you know that to be true? Did you know that God is always near to his creation and that there is never a time when he is not? If ever you feel distant from God, it is a lie you're telling yourself. God is never far. He is always near. Look at Jeremiah 22. Jeremiah, tw- I have it on the screen for you because this is important. I want you to see it. Jeremiah 22, 23, and 24. I am a God, What? At hand, declares the Lord. Not a God, am I a God far away? Can man hide himself in secret places that I can't see him? What is the expected answer? No. Do I not fill heaven and earth? What's the expected answer there? Yes. God is always near to his creation, but here's the special thing for us, that God manifests his presence with believers in a special way. God is near to his whole creation, that is even unbelievers. But do you know that for believers, God manifests his presence in our lives in a special way? I'll remind you of the words from John 14. Look at it with me, it's on the screen again. If you love me, you will keep my commandments and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth. Whom the world cannot receive. Do you see the already there's a distinction between us and the world? because it neither sees him or knows him, but you know him, and he dwells, how? With you, and will be in you. And then Jesus says the comforting words, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more. He's talking about his death and uh, resurrection, his ascension, but you will see me, that's his resurrection. But because I live, you will also live. And in that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Do you know that for believers, the very presence of God dwells in you? This is not true of the world around you. This is not true of unbelievers. You have the very presence of God in you now. It is not a fairy tale it is not something that we say to make ourselves feel better. It is a reality. God is in us. His very presence in us. But it is, is, is it easy to lose sight of that and forget that reality? Tell me, what does it do to your spirit when you remember, God is in me. He is here. He is near to me. When? Only on my really good days when I'm in the Lord, and I'm, I'm singing worship songs by myself in the kitchen, or whatever it may be to you, driving in your car, now that's the day that God is near to me. Is that how it works? When is God near to you? He is near to you always. When does God leave you? Never. What about my, on my really bad days, when I fall into sin, disobedience, does he leave you then? If he left you in your sin, you'd be gone forever. He does not leave you in your sin But in fact, he draws near to you in your sin. This is the graciousness of God. This is the reasonable character of God that when he could insist on his legal rights for you, he doesn't. He has grace. He has grace on you and he draws near to you even in your rebellion. Do you realize this about the character of God? He doesn't leave you. Tell me. When someone sins against you, they hurt you deeply. What do you do? You leave their presence. Not talking to that person anymore. Not going to let them hurt me anymore. But listen, what does God do? He draws near to you. He draws near. He doesn't leave. He goes after you. He doesn't leave you. He pursues you. That is a God to love and rejoice in. This is our God. This is the God that never leaves you. Does this produce in you a reasonable spirit? Does this produce in you a gentleness, knowing that my God has everything and that he loves me? In the midst of every circumstance I'm in, he cares for me? God is not only near in time. It is true that he is near to us in space. He is here now with you. So the Lord is at hand does this mean the Lord is coming and he will be present in his creation and he's coming near to all people you understand that and the Lord is at hand either to save or to destroy he will do nothing in between he will either save or destroy and he judges justly are you thankful for God's judgment are you thankful that the world isn't left into your judgment have you ever judged something wrongly? Has that ever happened? And you got all bent out of shape about it, and then you figured out I was actually wrong about that. And so that whole episode where I got all bent out of shape, I'm sorry about that. God never makes a mistake in judgment. Never. Is it a good thing or a bad thing that the Lord, that the Lord is at hand? <laughs> Remember Amos 5.18? We studied this not too long ago. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness to you and not light. Do you know that there are some who say, come Lord Jesus, come? Not even realizing the Lord is not coming for them to save them but to destroy. This is a harsh reality that should bring us into check. Our confidence in the Lord's judgment produces in us a calm and reasonable spirit that the world needs to see. The world needs to see it. The world needs to see that we have confidence in our God. And when there is injustice in the world, we don't riot, taking matters into our own hands, reviling in return, threatening in return, vigilante justice. This is not us. But no, the world should look at us and see what? A calm and reasonable spirit that entrusts themselves to the one who judges justly. The world needs to see that we have confidence in God himself. This is the command of scripture. Read it again. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Let's pray together. Father, we trust in your word today. We trust in your coming. We trust in your promises. Lord, we pray today, forgive us for our unreasonable behavior in this world. Sometimes things happen that we want to take matters into our own hands, and it is part of our sinful nature to want to do so. When we have lack of trust in you as the sovereign one in control of all things, sitting, ruling, and reigning on your throne, we trust, Lord. We trust in you. You have called us to make our reasonable spirit known to the whole world, not just unbelievers, but we need to encourage and remind the believers around us God is in control. God has this. He will render true justice for us. God will bring about justice at the right time. We trust that the Lord is near. And we trust, Lord, that you are near even to our hearts now. Give us confidence in this, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning, we are taking the Lord's Supper together. And I'm gonna read for you out of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. It says, beginning in verse 17, But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, one goes ahead with his own meal, another goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have your own houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that on the night the Lord Jesus, when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way he took the cup, he offered it, saying, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. So let a person examine himself then. And so eat. I want want you to realize here. So let a person examine himself then and then so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. There's an expectation here that you're going to examine yourself and repent rather than examine yourself and say I'm not worthy. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. The judgment of God came on them. But if we judged ourselves truly we would not be judged But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Okay, so these are the instructions from Paul to the church in Corinth about the Lord's Supper. And so today we are going to, the the way we're going to take the Lord's Supper, uh, I I know we kind of modified things during a time of sickness here. And so uh, we, we have, we normally break off of the same, piece of bread together. And this is important because it's symbolic because we share in multiple bodies and we share in the one body of Christ, right? We share in the one body of Christ together. So all these pieces we have have been broken from the same piece. We all eat of the same body. And likewise, we all drink from the same drink. We all drink from that. It's, it's not, it's poured in many cups, but it's all from the same source. It's all the blood of Christ that we drink. And so when you come this morning and you take a piece of bread and you take the juice that we drink, understand that when you drink and when you eat, we're doing three necessary things. Number one is we are remembering what Jesus did. Today, do not pass by this opportunity to remember what Jesus Christ did on the cross in his atoning death. If you do, this is not what God has commanded the church to participate in. You need to acknowledge and remember what Jesus did on the cross. The broken body and the shed blood of Christ for what? For you and for your sin, that he was judged in your place. In your place. And that the wrath of God was spent on him. And because he is God, he was raised from the dead showing that the wrath of God was made in full payment. Because if it wasn't, Jesus Christ would still be dead bearing the wrath of God, right? Bearing his wrath continually. But because he bared it in full, he raised from the dead. It shows us that it's paid, it is done. And so, we remember what Jesus Christ has done. Please do that this morning. The second thing we do is we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We proclaim his death until he comes. Yes, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We remember his death and we're proclaiming it until he comes. How do we proclaim it? We proclaim it in this symbolic act together. We're proclaiming it here together, the death of Christ. We're proclaiming as we eat and we drink. Why is it a good thing? Because without the death of Christ, we have nothing. Without the resurrection of Christ from the dead, we are of all people most to be pitied. He was raised for our justification to show that the wrath of God was paid in full. But that's not the only thing we do. We also examine ourselves. We examine ourselves today to see if there is any unrepented sin in us. And so what this means then is that the Lord's Supper is for believers. It is for people who have repented of their sins. It is for people who have come to Christ in faith. If you have never had that initial repentance and faith in Christ, Now is the time for that. Place your faith in Christ and understand that his death on the cross and his shed blood and his resurrection from the dead pays your fine, pays your penalty. His wrath, the wrath of God is absorbed in Christ and simply by placing your faith in Jesus, he takes all your wrath and places it on himself and gives you his righteousness. It's an unbelievable exchange and it happens by faith. But for those who have believed in Christ right now is an opportunity for you to examine yourself. It is most appropriate to examine yourself in light of what the word has said to us this morning. What is your behavior in the world? How do people view you and do they see faith and confidence in a sovereign God who judges justly? Or do they see faith and confidence in you as an individual carrying out your own wrath and justice in this world? If that has been you, now is the time to repent of that to God and joyfully take the Lord's Supper knowing that this has been forgiven by God as well. And so, Katie, I didn't actually verify with Katie. Katie, do you have a song for us today? Okay, thank you so much. Um, Katie's gonna play a song for us uh, this morning, and while she's playing a song, uh, you have an opportunity here to, uh, to pray. Um, and you can pray, uh, if you wanna pray with someone, you can do that, um, uh, if you wanna pray by yourself, you can do that, but right now is the time to pray, to remember the Lord's death, to think about his coming, to examine yourself and, and uh, confess that to God and repent of that sin today. This is also an opportunity to allow our children who are in here to see what we're doing, because this worked as a marker for, for, uh, for, for Israel as well, for the Passover. When you, when you do this meal, your children are going to ask you what you're doing. And guess what? You have an opportunity to talk about God's great redemption. God's passing over us in judgment. God has passed over believers in judgment, placing his judgment on his son for us. And so this morning, I'm going to pray for us, and Katie's going to play a song. Uh, we're gonna have a time of prayer anytime while Katie's playing. Anytime that it's right for you, you come up and take uh, the piece of bread and the and the and the juice, and you can go back to your seat and take that. You can come here if you want to kneel and pray. You can take it there, uh, but that's up to you. So uh, Katie's gonna come and pray after, uh, or she can pray if she wants. She she's gonna come and play after I pray, okay? And uh, and we'll take the Lord's Supper together. We'll end uh, our our whole service together also by by singing one last song together in proclamation and rejoicing, okay? So let's all pray. Father, as we uh, come together now as your people, we do something that you have told the church to participate in. And we want to be a church that's obedient to you. And you have told us, as often as we do this, we need to proclaim Uh, your death until you come back. We need to do this in remembrance of you. That's why we're here. We're doing this in remembrance of you and your broken body and your shed blood for us. And we rejoice. This is a meal of rejoicing in a great, gracious, sovereign God who loves us. But God, I pray that in this moment we would also take time to reflect and examine ourselves. So help us to see by your spirit and by your word. Help us to see ourselves for who we are and to repent where necessary this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.